Luke chapter 11, um, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the gathering, um, we are in unprecedented times right now. There's uh, a lot of pain in the world. Obviously, we had the pandemic, you know, leading up to this moment and still threatening lives even now. But then this week, um, in the murder of George Floyd, we have felt the viciousness of injustice in a very broken world and the need for deep racial reconciliation that is reverberating around our nation and around the globe right now. Even now, violent protests still raging in many cities. And so today, uh, we bring that pain, you know? We bring the lament. We bring the fear. Whatever we are feeling, we bring it. We don't have to leave it at the door. We bring it, um, but we bring it to the Word of God. And we bring it to the God of the Word, and we invite Him to speak to us today. Would you pray with me? Lord, in times like these, uh, where we often don't have answers, and our hearts are heavy. I know my heart is heavy. I, I know your heart is grieved. None of this was the way you intended it to be, Lord. In times like these, we uh, thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path when um, the road seems foggy or we don't understand the way to go or what to think or what to say. Thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet. And so we ask that you administer to it, us by it now, by your spirit, through your word. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus, the healer of the nations, the God of justice and truth and mercy and love, the God of hope. We ask it in your name today. Amen. So as we mentioned a minute ago, we're, uh, we're in a series called Such a Time as This, Hidden Treasures from the Cave of Quarantine. We are believing that God... Um, in every wave of this season is wanting to do things in us, speak to us in ways that he is not just after survival, like just trying to get through this, but he's actually after revival in us. We need it. We need it. And he is after revival in our world. That needs it. The title of today's sermon is Prayer in the Pandemonium. So imagine with me for a moment that you are one of Jesus' disciples and you've been walking with him for a few years. And after a few years, he turns to you and he says, hey, I'm going to give you the ability to do one thing just like I do it. But you only get to pick one. It's like a genie in the bottle kind of situation, right? Like you get one wish. What would it be? What would you ask Jesus to teach you to do? If you just got to ask him one thing, Lord, I want to do this one thing like you, because it would have to be something meaningful, first of all, right? Like very significant. They were living in tumultuous times. It would have to be something that would help with that. It would have to be something that had profound implications for them and for their world. And it would have to be something, I think, that when you got to the end of your life, you would look back and be like, gosh, I'm so glad I asked Jesus to teach me how to do that. Well, in Luke 11, uh, we get a glimpse into what that one thing might have been had we been one of the disciples 
uh, walking with Jesus. So up until the point in Luke 11, um, the disciples had seen Jesus turn water to wine. Uh, They saw Jesus cast out demons from demonized people, um, courageously stand up with boldness to corruption and to corrupt religious leaders, uh, miraculously multiply bread and loaves to feed thousands of people. They saw him command storms to just stop. They saw him heal lepers. Nobody heals a leper. Lepers don't get healed. Paralytics. Paralytics don't, paralytics don't get healed. Uh, uh, raise a dead girl from the dead. That does not happen. And then they saw him preach these life-changing, revolutionary sermons like the one on the sermon, uh, the sermon at the Mount of Olives. But they never ask him to teach them how to do any of it. By this point, like I, I'm going to be honest, I would ask Jesus for something like, hey, dude, just at least teach me like the walking on water thing, like <laughs> something. Or honestly, for my own life, like, Lord, that raising people from the dead thing, I, like I would have personally used that already a couple of times in my life. Like, Lord, teach me how to do something. But Luke 11 is the only time we see them ask Jesus to teach them how to do anything. And it might surprise you what they ask for. Luke 11, verse 1, says, Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, here it is, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer? Like that's the one thing? Come on, let's be straight, right? If we had one thing, this is not the thing we ask for. This is like at the bottom of a long list of other things. But this was the one thing the disciples asked for in Scripture, which tells me that there was something about prayer that the disciples understood that we may not. The life of Jesus was marked by it. The vitality of the early church seemed to be contingent on it. Every revival in history started with it. It is the lifeblood of our church and the church and possibly the most effective weapon that we have against the forces of wickedness that drive the battles that we find ourselves in in every season of life. And yet, it's maybe the thing we do the least. I don't know why exactly this was the one thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to do. But I do know that if it was the one thing they wanted to do better, then we should want that too. Today, I want to talk about just three things that happen when we pray. Next week, this is part one. Next week will be uh, uh, part two. It'll be the how, the how. Um, The title of this sermon is Prayer in the Pandemonium. Okay, if I didn't say it already. The title of this sermon is Prayer in the Pandemonium. Today, we are talking about three things that prayer does. Number one, Prayer leads to peace. Like I said, the title of the sermon is Prayer in the Pandemonium. Um, Pandemonium, it means an uproar or a chaotic situation. Something that seems no one has control over. Before we got to this week, this season has felt like that in many ways. Uh, Certainly our world feels like this right now, understandably so. And, you know, we want to be able to live in that. We don't want to avoid it. Uh, while not being overcome by the pandemonium, right? There is a deep unrest in the soul of humanity. And like I said, it, 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 it didn't just start this week. I don't even know that everything leading up to this week created this unrest in our souls. I think it was always there. 
And like uh, fire does to gold, causes the impurities to rise to the top, the heat of seasons like this cause the impurities inside of us to rise to the surface. And there we recognize, oh my goodness, there was a need for peace. Well, the Bible gives us a, a prescription to find it. Philippians uh, chapter four, verses six and seven. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. A little disclaimer here. Um, there are people who have legitimate like uh, clinical imbalance, uh, chemical imbalances, clinical anxiety. That's not what we're talking about here. Some people have legitimate trauma triggers that cause neurological anxiety. That's not what Philippians 4 is talking about. It's not talking about mental health or trauma-triggered anxiety. This is talking about situational anxiety, okay, if we read it in the context. It's talking about worry that is produced by our circumstances. Can the principles of Philippians 4 help someone who has clinical uh, chemical imbalances? Yes, absolutely. In clinical anxiety, I believe they can, but that's not the thrust of this passage. But for the kind of worry and anxiety that is a result of anxious situations, which is what most of us experience, uh, Philippians 4 does give us a path forward. And it's just two simple steps. It's almost like, damn, Lord, it seems so simple. Why do I struggle so much? It's two simple steps. Number one, don't worry, but pray. And step two, pray with petition and praise. Okay, so step one, don't worry, pray. When your thoughts are overcome with worry, it's saying invite God into your thoughts. Well, so simple. When your thoughts are overcome with worry, invite God into your thoughts. That means that when the worry starts creeping in, Scripture is telling us instead of entertaining the anxious thoughts, invite God into those thoughts. That's what prayer is, right? And God, inviting God into our thoughts is part of what prayer is anyways. Bringing God into the conversation. A little spoiler alert here. God already knows that you're worried. You don't have to be like, well, I'm going to wait till I calm down and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to wait till I clean myself up and then I'm going to pray. God is your father who loves you in spite of whatever you're struggling with and even when you are struggling with it. So step one, uh, don't worry, pray. Step two, pray with petition and praise. So we don't just petition, right? We're good at that. We're good at asking for things that we, we need. Uh, we don't just do that. We do do it. We don't just do that though. But it says, tell God, what you need, and thank him for what he has already done, it says in that, in that passage in Philippians. We kind of like to forget that part, right? The second part, the thank him for what he has done, but that's actually kind of the key. Even scientific studies are now discovering what scripture has said for 2,000 years, that, uh, that it's actually neurologically true, like duh, God made our neurons, right? Of course, uh, this is true. Here's what scientists have discovered. Thankfulness and what they call appreciation memories have the power to change your mental state from worry to peace. In other words, God designed us so that when we fill our minds with gratitude and appreciation, worry begins to dissipate. Thankfulness must be a part of our prayer process. But here's what I've found. This is not a one and done. You don't just like chuck up a prayer and then be like, okay, God's now magically gonna like make me full of peace. I'm experiencing so much peace right now. We need to pray and praise until we sense 
the peace. We got to fight for it, right? And we don't stop until we sense the peace. The peace is actually already there. It's already in us because the Prince of Peace lives in us. If the Prince of Peace lives in us, that means it doesn't get much more peaceful than that. But the worries of this life kind of drown out the peace. They cover up the peace. Prayer helps the worries to dissipate so that we can sense God's peace again. One of the other reasons prayer seems to lead to peace is that prayer slows us down to experience God's presence. And in God's presence is peace, right? We see this with Jesus. Every time Jesus showed up, his presence was there. He's bringing peace. He's like, peace to the storm. Peace after he rose from the dead. Anywhere Jesus is, there is peace. Prayer has a way of stilling our hearts and reminding us of the presence of God that surround us, surrounds us and where the presence of God is. There is peace. And the last way I think that prayer leads to peace is prayer turns our hearts and minds toward God, which leads us to peace. It is the uh, like mandatory that your mind is turned toward God when you pray, because that's like the step one, right? Well, when our hearts and minds are turned toward God, it brings peace. Isaiah 26 says it like this. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Prayer leads to peace. Lord, help us in times of worry, right? To turn not to other things, but to turn to him. Second point, prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. I think sometimes we can often feel like um, prayer is pointless or like second class maybe to doing things because it's like, well, if I do something physically, at least I, I have more confidence that like something's actually getting done. But what James 5 tells us is that the effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. God works when we pray. Like the old saying says, when men work, men work. But when men pray, God works. Now, I'm not saying that we don't physically participate in things like bringing justice on earth. We absolutely do. But injustice on earth is rooted in the wickedness of people's hearts. And people's hearts can only be transformed by the power of God which makes prayer maybe our most effective weapon if that's what we are wanting to see. What we see in scripture is that prayer changes things. In Acts 12, uh, Peter is arrested by King Herod for preaching the gospel. Um, and it says, uh, when Herod had seized him, he put him in prison. Okay, this is terrifying. He's in prison. His people are scared. It says, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Okay, Peter's arrested. His friends are worried, rightly so. They don't know what to do, but they want to do something. And yet they know uh, God is the one who can help them. And so they storm the gates of heaven with prayer. They're praying fervently for Peter. It goes on. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him, Peter forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. This dude is on lockdown. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up, Peter. 
Get up quickly, actually it says. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's tripping, right? Doesn't even realize what's happening. He doesn't know what's happening. The people are at home. They're still praying like, God, help Peter, release Peter. They don't know what's happening either. Peter's tripping, angel's with him. It goes on and says, when they had passed the first and second guard, so they're going by the guards who don't even know anything, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city. Uh Uh-oh, nope, not uh uh-oh, which opened for them by itself. The gate opens by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. He's like, you got it from here. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Why does Dr. Luke the author of Acts, he's a doctor, right? So doctors see symptoms and they say, what's happening in the, in the background of these symptoms? He makes a, a, a point to mention at the beginning and the end of the story, like this was the power of God, but was the church involved in any way? Oh, the church was involved in some way. Be- beginning and end of the story, the church was praying. I think he wants us to see the connection here. Stuff happens when we pray. There was nothing that these people could have done, but they wanted to do something. Through prayer, they could. Listen, guys, we may not be able to be on the other side of the world ministering to Muslims, caring for orphans at the World Health Organization, trying to figure out a way to um, stop the spread of COVID-19. We may not be able to be in places like Minnesota today as agents and ambassadors of God's love and peace and justice and mercy. But through prayer, we can do effective work in places where we can't physically be. Eternal, effective work in places that we cannot physically be through prayer when the people of God pray things change for the glory of God. In Exodus 32, they're in the wilderness and Moses is up on the mountain with God. The people are down on the mountain. Moses is up there for days. The people are getting mad about it. And they make these golden calves and start worshiping them. They hold them up and they're like, look at your gods. Look at your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Dude, they're full-blown idolatry, pagan practices around a fire. It's bad. God sees it, is not happy. He's like, Moses, get out of the way. I'm gonna destroy these people. They're, they're so far from me. There's no hope for them. I'm gonna destroy them. Moses in Exodus 22, 11, it says, Moses then pleaded with the Lord, his God. Moses prays to God and he asks God, he goes on and asks God to relent from his plan of judgment and to instead show mercy. And it says in Exodus 32, 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So the Lord relented. The the word relented literally means to turn from an undesirable course of action. Some of your translations might read, God changed his mind. So the Lord changed his mind. Here's the deal. God would have been just in pouring out judgment. 
he would have been just in showing mercy. But the judgment was an undesirable course of action. And when Moses prayed, God changed the plan and relented from that undesirable course of action and showed mercy. Now listen, when God relents from something, it's not like when man changes his mind. When man changes his mind, it's because he just felt like it, right? It's arbitrary. Or because he was wrong in the first place and he's like, oh no, I gotta change to the right decision. Or because he got some kind of new information that he previously didn't have. But it's important to note that God is neither arbitrary, nor wrong, nor ill-informed, but sometimes does relent from an undesirable course of action. Moses prayed, and then the situation changed. What we see in Scripture is that when God's people pray, things change. Now, it's the power of God that does the work, right? It wasn't the power of the, the people praying in Acts 12. It was God sent an angel to do this. When God's people pray, God moves. But when people pray, God does move. Which makes prayer then one of the greatest tools that we have. And one of the greatest weapons that we have. That's right. Prayer is a weapon that wages war on the devil. In Ephesians 6, Paul instructs us what to do in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And he gives us all these... uh, he says we have all these uh, armor things, right? It's all defensive in nature, except for two things. He said, you got two offensive things here. He says, and take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the prayer. The word and prayer is what he mentions here. We talked about the sword of the spirit, the word of God last week. The week before that, we talked about 2 Chronicles 20. We see worship is also a weapon, but maybe the most powerful weapon of all is the weapon of prayer. We said it three weeks in a row now, but I'm gonna say it again. There is a war going on, and although we feel it in the physical, it is spiritual in nature, and spiritual battles must be fought with spiritual weapons. Church, prayer is one of those weapons. When we pray, things can begin to shift. And what we see is that sometimes it appears that God is actually waiting to act until we ask. I don't know how this works with the sovereignty of God, but we do see it in Scripture. Ezekiel 22 is one of those places. God says, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, literally intercede between the people and me, right? Pray for these people. But there was no one. Therefore, I have poured out my judgment on them. James 4 says that the reason we don't have is because we haven't asked yet. I don't know why, but sometimes God waits to act until we ask. Now listen, obviously there are some things that God has put into motion that no amount of prayer can stop. If you pray for Jesus to not return, that's still going to happen. When I was 13 years old, I used to pray that the rapture wouldn't happen all the time because I was living in sin and I liked it. And I'd be like, Lord, please. He wasn't listening to my prayers. If you pray for those types of things, God has already put it in motion. You can't pray against that. But there are some things, it seems, that are waiting to change until we ask. And I think maybe that's why the disciples were like, Jesus, teach us that one thing. Because they saw that when Jesus prayed, things changed. When the disciples, for instance, couldn't cast out a demon in Matthew 17, And then Jesus comes along and casts it out. And they're like, what? What You you told us we had power over demons. We couldn't do it. What's the difference? Jesus said, here's the difference. You didn't pray 
I prayed. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. We'll look more at that next week. Here's the point. If we want to see lasting change, listen, unconditional love and unity. If we want to see social justice, the healing of the nations, racial reconciliation, peace in the souls of men and women, not just on the streets, peace in the souls of men and women, the erasing of prejudice in all of us, because we've all got it, in all of us. And if we want to see revival, then we must pray. Speaking of revival and prayer, the third point, prayer paves the way for revival. Now listen, the word revival gets a little sensationalized, right? Here's what I'm talking about very simply. I'm talking about an awakening, awakening of people's hearts to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means that sleeping Christians wake up. That's revival. Wake up and become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. And it means that the spiritually dead in the world are born again by the Spirit of God. That's what revival is. And the reason I want to make the connection between prayer and revival and not like prayer and social justices or social issues or something like that is because revival transforms the heart. Revival is about the heart. Injustice happens because of the wickedness of men and women's hearts. And transformed hearts lead to transformed societies. So revival... The revival of the heart is what we want. And there is a deep and profound connection between prayer and revival. Listen, today is Pentecost Sunday. 2,000 years ago, almost, the church was birthed by the, the Spirit of God. God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. Just like it said in, in, uh, in the book of Joel, right? Chapter 2, God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And the church was birthed. But do you know what was happening in the background of that? Did you know that the church was birthed during a prayer meeting after Jesus rose from the dead? Told the disciples, go to Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. 50 days later, which is what Pentecost means. 50. Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem and they went up into the upper room. Okay, big old house with an upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, plus another 120 people, it says in, in Acts uh, 115. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So they're together in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. What are they doing? They are praying. This is their prayer house. This is a prayer meeting. It goes on in Acts chapter two. And then when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They're still there. They're still praying. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they we're all filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you know the story. They go on. The Spirit falls like tongues of fire. They're all filled with the Spirit. They're all speaking in tongues of other languages. They go outside and all these foreigners are hearing the, the good news, the praise of God in their own language because these people from uh, Israel are speaking in other tongues, other languages. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and 3,000 people are saved and the church is birthed. Guys, we cannot miss the fact that it was during a prayer meeting <laughs> that God poured out his spirit and birthed his church. And a prayer meeting where they were unified, by the way. 
Dr. Luke mentions two things in the background here. They were praying and they were unified, man. If we think God is going to bring revival with all the division, even in the church, among denominations and socio-ethnic backgrounds, we are wrong. We are wrong. They were in unity praying when God poured out his spirit. This is the heart of God. We see that was his plan in the beginning. God weeps in the division in our country and in the church. We got to examine our hearts and say, God, where is my heart off? What prejudices do I roll with? What do I have in here? God, search my heart. Give me a clean heart, oh God. Make me like you, the one who made every creed and color and nation and time. The one who designed it that way and who will restore it. To that, like it says in Revelation 7, where every tribe, tongue, and nation will someday gather around your throne, Jesus. God, do it in our hearts. Lord, do it in our hearts. Okay, that's a different sermon. I'm sorry. The point is, the first and greatest revival in all of history started at a prayer meeting. And listen, I don't know of a single revival in history that was not birthed. Because of God's people, or at least when God's people were crying out to God in prayer. And I believe then that this is the best way that we can partner with God's plan to redeem humanity and bring restoration. In fact, God tells us to participate in this way in 2 Chronicles 7. He said, at times, I may shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Or command grasshoppers to devour your crops. Or send plagues among you. You want 2020 language here? Famine, financial problems, riots in the streets, injustice, pandemics. At this time, then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. But did you catch it? It was an if-then statement. During times like these, and we are in times like these, if my people pray, then I will heal their land. Which makes me wonder if the opposite is also true. Like if God's people don't pray, will he not heal the land? Or at least he's waiting for his people to cry out in prayer before he moves and heals our land. I'll finish with this. People are searching desperately for hope and justice and love. And we do want mercy and some sense of resolve, right? But they will never find it on earth apart from Jesus. God wants to save, restore, redeem humanity. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3 that he's not wanting any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. That is revival. I want to see it. I want to see it in the church. I want to see it in the streets. I want to see it in the bars and in the clubs and in the police precincts and in the corporations on city streets and Wall Streets, Venturas, Main Street. I want to see it. Church, we want to see it. God wants to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every ethnic background, with all of our baggage. He wants to save us out of our prejudices and our brokenness and our wickedness. This is why Jesus came. This is why the Father sent his Son and why the Son gave his life. He is the healer of the nations and he wants to pour out his spirit and save many. 
I want to see it. You want to see it. We want to see it better than that. God wants to see it. God wants it. God wants it. But maybe he is waiting for his people to humble ourselves, to turn from our wicked ways, to get on our faces, to repent from things that do not please him and start praying. Church, I think it starts with prayer. Amen. Lord God, help us. Healer of the nations, help us. God of justice and truth and mercy, the healer of the nations, help us. Teach us too to pray, God. Teach us too to pray. Teach us too to turn in prayer from our our ways that don't please you, from our thinking and our actions that don't please you. Teach us, God, to turn from our prejudices. Teach us to turn from racism. Teach us to turn from inequality. Teach us to turn from a lack of mercy and understanding and compassion. Teach us to turn, God. Teach us to turn from our divisions. Lord, you love everyone. You love all of them. All of them, God. You love all of us. All the brokenness, even the wickedness in spite of our, and I say our, my wickedness and the proclivity I have for my wicked heart to turn away from you. In spite of all of that, you love us, God. You love us, Lord, and your heart is for us. Teach us to pray, oh God. Teach us to pray, oh God. Teach us to pray, oh God. Teach us, Lord. We were going to spend some minutes praying. We're not going to do that right now. I think we just need to sit. We just need to sit in stillness. And, uh, man, where we need to repent, let's just turn our hearts to God. Maybe where you're at, just get on your knees. I'm not the Holy Spirit, man. I can't tell you what's going on in your heart. I don't know. I know what happens in my heart. I know where I have a proclivity to sin. But examine your heart. Say, God, examine my heart. Find if there is any wicked way in me, Lord. And then lead me in the path everlasting. Help me, God. Just take a moment. God, we repent. We turn from thinking that is not like yours. I turn from thinking that is not like yours, Lord. Help me, God. Help me, Lord. Help me, God. We turn to you. We come and we bow our hearts before you. Humble us, Lord. Humble us in your sight. We turn our hearts and our eyes away from wickedness. This Tuesday night, we're going to pray for our nation. I invite you to come out online or on site. No, this, no, this week's just online. I invite you to come out online. But right now, let's turn our hearts toward God as we worship in song. 
So we respond in song.